Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss essential topics about the art and culture of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Cinangeli. Andiamo avanti. How are we doing? I'm working diligently to get the podcast schedule back on track here into its two-week rhythm, so bear with me. Just about ten days ago, we put our show on Galileo up uh, with the delightful Ian Billig. I'm a bit overwhelmed with the success of that episode. I appreciate you guys so much for all of your continued support. I'm loving the momentum that this show is getting. With that momentum, I've been so lucky to hear from a lot of you guys, either in comments on post, but more so in direct messages. I love this. I encourage it. I, more than anything, want to put out content that you want to listen to. Because of that, we're going to take a step back in time to discuss one of the most influential figures of Italian history, Dante Alighieri. If we can think back all the way to the first episode where we discussed what the Renaissance is, how it was set up, and who were the key figures, if you haven't, I would say go listen to that episode now and then come back to this one. But you'll recall our discussion of proto-Renaissance figures, of which Dante very much was. These are figures who are still grounded in late medieval culture and society and do not generally get classified as Renaissance writers. They are slightly too early, but produce such significant cultural productions that they are inseparable from discussions of Renaissance history. So, in order to discuss Dante thoroughly, this is going to be done in two episodes, at least. We will first talk about who Dante was, his life, works, and his role in Florentine society. Then we will dedicate an entire episode to his most popular work, La Commedia, the Divine Comedy. But don't move on from this episode. You might find that Dante is more than his most known work, The Divine Comedy, right? And uh, a very dynamic and complex cultural figure. He was born in either May or June of 1265. Now, we've been predominantly in the end of the 1400s, so we're taking quite a jump back. Um, in Florence, to a family of minor nobility. This means that Dante would have had a certain amount of privilege in his time, allowing him to study what was known as grammatica, which is grammar, letters, literature, things of that nature. At some point in his education, Dante came under tutelage of the philosopher called Brunetto Latini, uh, who Dante actually is going to write into his Inferno, and we'll talk more about that later. Ingrained in intellectual life in Florence, Dante met the famed poet Guido Cavalcanti, and together they honed their skill in a poetic style that is called the Dolce Stil Novo, the sweet new style. So in order to explain the Stil Novo, as we'll call it moving forward, uh, we have to look at how it comes in direct dialogue with the literary movements that were coming through Tuscany in the 1200s. So let's take this adventure so we can best understand Dante's poetry. Before Dante, across the Alps in what is today southern France, uh, at the time, and I think still part of it, is called Occitania, right, Provence. This is, in the Middle Ages, the land of the troubadours. What are troubadours, Lawrence, you might be asking me in your head? Not what, my dear listeners, who? 
They were the traveling minstrels of the Middle Ages, highly skilled poets, songwriters, singers, musicians, who found employment in all of the high courts all over the Mediterranean Sea. Their influence was so strong that it became common at court for the courtesans to learn to understand the Occitan language as troubadours were not likely singing in local languages. Keep in mind, medieval Occitan is a beautiful blend of Latin, Italian, French, and even Catalonian. So if you have any experience with any of these languages, reading Occitan lyric might not be terribly difficult. I would say, surprisingly, knowing Italian and French, Italian was more helpful for me when I was studying medieval Occitan. Give it a try, and there's plenty of resources online for it. These troubadours would essentially find employment in certain courts, either long or short term, while many hilarious, lewd, even straight-up vulgar troubadour lyrics exist, and are very fun to read, mind you, they paired them with works that focused on ideas around courtly love. And while they managed to spread all over Europe, and even as far as the eastern Mediterranean, near modern-day Israel, it was in Sicily where their influence would cause a ripple effect all the way back to our subject, Dante. In Sicily, at the end of the 1100s and into the 1200s at the court of Federico II, the intellectuals of the Sicilian court decided that they wanted to emulate the works of the troubadours who were present in their court, except they wanted to do it in their own Sicilian vernacular, vernacular, dialect, what have you. So this poetic movement is called the Scuola Siciliana, or the Sicilian school. Giacomo Dalentini is an essential poet of the Scuola Siciliana, actually known as the master of the Sicilian school, and he wrote the bulk of his lyric in the 1230s. Him and his contemporaries draw heavily from Occitan troubadour themes, including bits of Occitan which infiltrated their poetic language, meaning Occitan grammar, Occitan um, linguistic elements mixed with Sicilian vernacular. Additionally, given that we're almost always talking about male poets, the biggest question is how their women are represented. This is the central topic when we're, when we're discussing these types of poetic movements. N note, it's not likely that the Scuola Siciliana performed their lyrics, or even shared them with the court, but was rather a group of writers rather than mu musicians who were playing this poetic kind of game together so they could objectify and praise the courtly women in their works. So how do we define that donna, or the, the woman, in the Sicilian school? That'll be courtly, pale-faced, blonde, often seen from afar, almost as if the poet is voyeuristic. I might note those are characteristics taken directly from the troubadours. And I don't think it's too absurd to depict the courtly women this way. On one hand, were courtly women in Sicily, a very sunny island in the Mediterranean, pale and blonde? Maybe some were. Women in the period would often avoid the sun, even color their hair by whatever means in order to present themselves as pure. Remember, light colors is a, is a, a symbol of purity and chastity, etc. So, which is certainly with the poetry 
wants to do, at least in depicting them as so. It could also just be simple borrowings from the Oxton lyric, which feature a more northern physicality. It's probably a little bit of both. Even though southern France doesn't really have a, a northernness to it, it is more northern than Sicily. In any case, this is the most important takeaway. Sicilian poetry was the first major movement in writing poetry in vernacular Italian or vernacular Sicilian, right? A poetry movement which often focused on the distant admiration of courtly women who were shown as objects of purity due to their nobility, their blood, nobility through blood, right? In whatever capacity, the works of the Scuola Siciliana reached Tuscany, where a poet named Guitone d'Arezzo would start the Scuola Toscana. Can you guess what that means? We had the Scuola Siciliana, now we have the Scuola Toscana, the Tuscan school of poetry. Keep in mind, Florence is the red-hot center of Tuscany, where Dante is, and Guitone is producing works in and around Dante's early life. The Tuscan school maintained themes of courtly love that it adopted from the Sicilian school. However, we must keep in mind that Tuscany did not operate in the same court structure that was found in Sicily. So, while it maintained the idea of virtue through nobility, other themes took over, such as the political strife of the Guelphs and Ghibellines. Right, the warring political parties of the 13th century Central Italy. It's an essential part of our story that we're going to come back to, but bookmark Guelphs and Ghibellines for the end of this episode. So Dante is interacting with this poetry of the Sicilian court and the Tuscan school. He was an admirer of Occitan lyric, independent of it being filtered through the Sicilian court. He enjoyed Oxen Poets, and we'll actually see at least one in his Divine Comedy. So this is where the Dolce Stil Novo comes in. Remember that sweet new style, the Stil Novo, as Florence does not fit into the court structure that dominated slightly earlier poetry, Dante, his friend Guido Cavalcanti, and uh, Guinizelli d'Arezzo, who founded the, the Tuscan school, they would collectively, across their poetry, often focus on, again, women. But now she is not the, the far-off, courtly woman tucked away in a tower who draws her nobility from her right of blood. The nature of love comes from the nobility of the soul, the internal goodness of a person, of noble blood or not. More often, not. Here, especially for Dante, it is not the noble woman, but the angelic woman, la donna angelica, pure of soul. Poetic love for this woman is closer, more elevated, refined, and follows a philosophy of the soul. It is a divine love. The Stil Novisti, right, the poets of the Stil Novo, valued the pretty lady walking down the street, so to speak. They drew their philosophy from, in part, a contemporary theologian, scholar, and uh, saint, eventually, Bonaventure, who 
theorized or believed, philosophized that light was the principle of being. Light is a recurring theme in Stil Novo poetry, being a symbol of purity, of the soul, and of this angelic lady that these works often focus on. Do you see the traces of this in what follows in later centuries with the Neoplatonist revival, with Renaissance humanism, and the works that we've discussed in past episodes? Dante is no doubt a precursor to Renaissance thought. So by the 1290s, Dante composes his Vita Nova, his new life, in the Stil Novista style, where he mixes prose with poetry in what is called prosimetrum style, for the literature people out there that want a fun vocabulary word, prosimetrum, prose and um, meter, right? In this essential work, Dante aims not only to write his own autobiography, but to elevate the sense of courtly love that was the period's literature and bring it to the level of ideal divine love. He does this through his beloved Beatrice. Beatrice is the single most important figure when we look at Dante's life, his inspiration, and his works. In the Vita Nova, we are introduced to Dante's first time seeing her, but the work finishes in her death. It can be difficult to differentiate between poetic device and reality, but Dante's Beatrice is commonly identified with one Bice Portinari, who was a young Florentine woman who died in the year 1290. The Vita Nova exemplifies Dante's version of ideal love as shown through his profound admiration for Beatrice. Very important. This is an unrequited love. One way from Dante to Beatrice, she does not return it to him. He is left to admire, long for, and desire her, but in a way that is presented as spiritual, can be interpreted as romantic, and maybe even erotic, much like Petrarch's Laura. Let me read for you from a translation of the Vita Nova, where Dante tells of Beatrice's death. My version of this work is in Italian, so I found a translation online on a website called Passages to the Past. This is what Dante says. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people. If you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. Beatrice has gone to the highest heaven, to the realm where the angels have peace, 
and stays with them and has left you ladies. No quality of coldness took her or of heat as it is with others, but it was only her great gentleness. Since light, St. Bonaventure, light, right? Since light from her humility pierced the skies with so much virtue that it made the eternal Lord marvel so that a sweet desire moved him to claim such greeting and called her from the heights to come to him since he saw our harmful life was not worthy of such a gentle one. Isn't our boy Dante a smooth talker? Smooth writer? What have you? So much so that here, even in death, Beatrice is divine. She does not die like the rest. She's not cold. Her gentleness took her away from this cruel world that she was unfit for and raised her to the heavens. This is, of course, just a part of his life in the Vita Nova. Beatrice will return as a central figure when we get to the Divine Comedy. Keep her name in mind. After writing the Vita Nova, Dante begins his work in public life in Florence. He was a member of the Guelph Party, if you remember my earlier comments about Guelphs and Ghibellines. This is a very complicated historical and political topic, one of which I have no expertise in. I will just say what is important to know. These were the two opposing political factions in the dispute between the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor. Guelphs supported the Pope, and the Ghibellines supported the Emperor. This dispute created almost centuries of conflicts throughout Europe. However, the Guelphs triumphed over the Ghibellines in Tuscany in 1289. Dante participated in the Battle of Campaldino, the most decisive battle in expelling Ghibellines from Tuscany. That's right, Dante Alighieri, the great poet, was also a Guelph warrior, taking names on the Campaldino. Did you imagine he would be this cool? Did we, if you're still with me and we got this far, do you know Dante? Dante was this cool. Keep following me here. As politics go, since we can never actually get along, the dominating Guelphs and Florence split into two parties by the time Dante was politically active. They are known as the Black and the White Guelphs. The great dispute was the support for the unpopular Pope Boniface VIII. Dante was a White Guelph, opposed to papal influence in Florentine affairs. Unfortunately for Dante, the Black Guelphs took control of the city of Florence and expelled the White Guelphs. Dante was tried for corruption and hostility towards the Pope and sent into exile in 1302. There you have it, folks. The United States is not the first time a two-party system doesn't work. You didn't hear it from me. So let me say this concisely. Guelphs win over Ghibellines. Guelphs divide into white and black Guelphs. Black Guelphs win. Dante loses with the white Guelphs and is exiled from Florence. He loves Florence, too. He'll also take sweet revenge on his political rivals, immortalizing them in his inferno. So can we see 
how Dante's turbulent life was a perfect concoction for one of the most celebrated pieces of Western literature. He was an intellectual central to a literary movement. The love of his life dies young, and he never lets that go. He was battle-hardened. He saw death and probably took life violently himself. Still, his political party was defeated, shamed, and exiled. He has hurt. He has resentment. He knows loss. Most of all, he is very sharp with a pen or a quill. Keep in mind, when they wrote with those quill pens, they probably didn't write with the feather on it like you see. They could like make quill pens using bird feathers, but they would typically strip the feather part off it. They weren't sitting there in some warm, firelit room with monks singing, writing with this gigantic feather. That probably didn't happen. I hate to break it to you all. So Dante dies in 1321 in the city of Ravenna, who still has his funerary monument in the city. It has a, I think it's an eternal flame. I've been to it. There's a fire there. I think the fire always burns, and I think there's a ceremony to replace the oil for it. So if you're ever in Ravenna, keep in mind to go visit Dante's tomb and pay your respects. So Florence also has an empty tomb for him in the church of Santa Croce. Um, and there are actually stories about Tuscans trying to recover his remains and bring them back to Florence, even though his tomb is a, is a neoclassical one. It's much later. However, between his exile in 1302 and his death in 1321, he continues his political and literary pursuits in Verona, Treviso, and many other places in northern and central Italy. This is also when he writes his De Volgare Eloquentia, his argument for the literary use of various forms of vernacular Italian, though funny enough, not the Florentine one, even though he writes his Commedia in his own dialect. Most importantly, fueled by his displacement and defeat, his keen mind and devout piety, Dante composes the Divine Comedy, his journey through hell, purgatory, and paradise, the subject of our next podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm eager to continue talking about Dante next time. Please, if you don't already, give this podcast a rating wherever you listen, especially my Apple users who are the majority of my listenership. Thank you and everyone, not just Apple people, so much. Also, like our Facebook page, follow the Instagram account for extra information and images to accompany the episodes. Financial support is crucial for the continued work put into this show. Feel free to support the show directly. Choice is yours, or just keep listening. Share this show with your friends. Let everyone who likes Italian history know to listen to the Italian Renaissance podcast. And keep reaching out. I love hearing from you guys. I hope you enjoyed this brief biography of Dante Alighieri. And mind you, I said brief. And I hope you look forward to where we're going next. Dante Alighieri's masterpiece, 
the Divine Comedy, starting with a whole episode on probably the most famous poem of the Middle Ages, epic poem, I suppose, the Inferno, in all of its magnificent, gruesome, alarming, and shocking detail. I am going to do my best to cover that work in the most exciting and vivid way possible. So, my dear listeners, until next time, Arrivederci.